Today's scripture reading comes from Mark 8, verse 22 to 26, and Mark 10, verse 46 to 52. And they came to Bethesda, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he said, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Chapter 10, verse 46 to 52. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart. Get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, good morning. We are working our way through a sermon series on the book of Mark, and for those of you who have been tracking along with us, we're making good progress. We're up through chapter 7 into chapter 8, and as we do this, as we kind of go through this book, we're about halfway through now, it's uh, helpful to remind ourselves as we go why Mark wrote this book in the first place. I mean, we can sort of get caught in the trees and the details, and there's such great stories, but it's nice to zoom out every once in a while and remind ourselves, what's this whole thing about? Like, what's the whole book about Mark's purpose, his heart? And there's a couple reasons. He wants us to have a historically reliable account of Jesus' life. I mean, this is one of the most impactful, important humans who ever lived, and Mark wants to lay out the facts. He wants to tell us, What happened? So everything that we read here is true. I mean, these stories actually happened. As miraculous, as wild, as crazy as they seem sometimes, this is Mark recounting history, okay? But it's not just history. What's so great about this is that Mark is telling us not only what happened in Jesus' life, but he's telling it in a way that is encouraging us to see him and to believe who he is, why he lived, why he died, and why he rose again. In other words, this is a purposeful biography. Another way to put it, it's a worshipful biography. It's not like when I pick up Walter Isaacson's book on Leonardo da Vinci, as good as it was, right, that I'm just getting all this information about this incredible human. This is actually driving us from the facts to worship, okay, to to consider how great and and amazing Jesus really is. This is not just about information. It is that, but it's also about transformation. So Mark wants us to see and believe that Jesus isn't just a normal guy, that he's God, he's man, he's combined into one incredible life, 
and he's the king of creation. And actually, Mark's structure through the book helps us know this, helps us believe this. So in part one, which is chapters one through seven, which we kind of just wrapped up, Jesus is demonstrating his kingdom. And we saw this in all kinds of incredible ways. He's healing, healing lepers. He's healing the sick, you know, providing meals in a desert. He's demonstrating what it's like to live in his kingdom. And then in this part, part two, chapters eight through 10, he's explaining his kingdom. It's sort of called the discipleship section of the gospel. These four chapters, he leaves the crowds largely and spends the majority of his time with his closest followers. They journey to Jerusalem, and along the way, he's explaining what it's like to follow him. And then in the third part of the book of Mark, chapters 11 to 16, he establishes his kingdom. He he goes to the cross, he dies, he raises again. It's the most upside-down, counterintuitive establishment of a kingdom ever, and he establishes it for eternity. So I zoom out for a minute here because today we're actually entering a new section of the book. We're starting part two, chapters eight through 10, this part that's been called the discipleship section. And one interesting thing about this section of Mark is that it begins and ends with Jesus healing a blind man, all right? These two passages that we just considered this morning, they frame this whole middle section of the book. In these next four chapters, Jesus is going to say a lot of stuff, practical stuff about what it looks like and means to follow him. But Mark wants us to see everything he's about to say inside this frame of two blind men coming to see again, miraculously. This is Mark's literary way of saying, if you want to follow Jesus, if you're interested in discipleship, if you're interested in what a life lived pursuing him looks like, to to grow like him, to worship him, to enjoy him, you've got to pass through, so to speak, these two miracles. You have to, these two stories of light breaking into the darkness. Two stories of blindness turn miraculously into sight. This is the entrance. This is the way into discipleship with Jesus. So Mark arranges his gospel not only to tell us about Jesus, but to encourage us to trust in him, to throw our lives in with him. And he puts these two stories in place very deliberately. Mark is showing us something about Jesus' character, something about him that's always been true about God from the very beginning of time. So I'm going to do something a little different than we do uh, normally. Normally, we kind of like pick a passage and stick with it. I'm actually going to use this passage to bump up a little bit into a bigger picture of what's going on in the whole Bible. So in the first part this morning of looking at this passage, I want to spend a few minutes looking at that broad, sweeping story of what God has been up to in the world from the beginning of time. And then in the second half, we'll look a little more closely at the encounter that these two men have with Jesus. And along the way, as usual, we'll keep an eye out for what all this means for us today as we consider pursuing and following Jesus. So, big picture first. Let's frame it like this. What has God been up to? Like, what does God do? Okay? From the very beginning of the world, what does he do? When God's at work, what does it look like? And and what should we kind of have an eye out for when God is at work in this world? What has God been up to since the beginning of the world? Well, I want to propose to you that everything that God does can be summarized this way. God turns on the lights, 
Okay? Consider the very first words of the Bible. Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was void, and what covered the face of the deep? Darkness was everywhere, wasn't it? And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. You see, the very first act of God, the very first instance, the word that he speaks, action that he does, is a foundational to all the activity that he's going to do, past, present, and future. He brings light into darkness. When God's at work in the world, he's bringing light into darkness. God turns on the lights. So it's not surprising then that when the Bible describes God's judgment against evil and sin in his world, in other words, when his creation begins to rebel against him, against his creator, the result is the unraveling of creation and it's a return to darkness. I mean, consider, okay, so we're kind of, we're we're fast forwarding through a lot of biblical history here. Just kind of hang with me. We'll summarize when we get to the end. Uh, but uh, we're, we're cruising now into Exodus, okay? So consider the plagues that came to Egypt as that country rebelled against God as God. Um, all of those plagues are examples of creation unwinding, unweaving. Consider the ninth plague. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven and there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness that can be felt. Have you ever felt darkness before? So empty, so dark, that it's like a weight. It's like oppressive. This is how the Bible describes it when God removes his sustaining, life-giving hand, and the world starts to unwind. His judgment is just his removing his life-giving hand, and the world sort of undoes itself. And the Bible describes it as a darkness that can be felt. That happens on a national scale. It happens personally. When Job describes the tragedy and the grief of his experience in a broken world, not his fault, not his guilt, but his experience of the brokenness of the world, he says, when I hoped for good, evil came, and when I waited for the light, darkness came. I wonder, have you guys ever experienced that? Maybe you are now. The effects of an evil and a broken world. The impact of the evil that we do, the impact of the evil done to us? And would you ever describe any moment in your life as darkness, even a darkness that can be felt? This is how the Bible talks about the brokenness of our world, the unraveling of it. Broken by sin, darkness creeping in. It's global. It's personal. But here's the thing. The God of light does not leave us alone in a dark world, but the creator of light re-enters our world. And so David in the Psalms writes things like this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Or later in Psalm 43, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. See, the psalmists describe God's personal presence and activity in the world as turning on the lights, right? Light that leads to salvation, light that leads to truth, light that leads to guidance through a dark and broken world. But here's the thing. As the Old Testament continues, not only do the authors describe God's presence in their own life, they start to make promises about a light that is going to come in the future that isn't here yet, and the promises grow. They kind of like 
get out of control. I mean, some of the things that the prophets start to say about this light that's going to show up, it gets outrageous and large and like overwhelming. How could any light accomplish this? Isaiah 60, your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. The Lord will be your everlasting light, a light that never goes out, and your days of mourning shall be ended. No more sadness, no more loss, no more of the ickiness that our dark world has for us. All of that is gone forever. The promises get a bit out of control. And then, at the beginning of the New Testament, just like at the beginning of the Bible, we read about a light that enters into the darkness. When a boy is born in a shed in a nondescript hillside in Bethlehem, Matthew actually quotes Isaiah, telling us, this is the one we've been waiting for. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And in case it isn't crystal clear quite yet, Jesus himself then goes on to say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then, for those that start to follow him, he gives this commission. Okay, so anyone who considers himself a Christian, who follows Jesus, he says, you are the light of the world. You're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Okay, that was a flyby, wasn't it? In case you, uh, well, I assume you're all with me. Um, but as you're following along at home, this, where we are right now, this should be the climax of the story of God's work in the world, okay? God brings light in creation, and then Jesus brings light in salvation. And as he sends his people out into the world, it should just be a matter of time, shouldn't it? Like, we just need to sort of extend the light, and then sooner or later, everything will get better, and we'll all be good to go. But then the strangest thing that could possibly happen happens in the Bible, in the story of God at work. We think we're at the climax of the story, and then what happens is the light himself, the one who spoke light into existence in the first place, gets snuffed out, doesn't he? See, Jesus is put on a cross as a common criminal, and we're told um, in Mark 15 that when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. What is happening right there? The author of life, the author of light, is descended into darkness. The lights were turned off on the one who brings light into the world. Jesus enters the darkness and everything that that represents in our world, the chaos, the sin, the evil, the hopelessness, the death, the blindness, Jesus fully experiences that unraveling of creation when God removes his sustaining, life-giving hand from his only son. And he experiences, he endures that ultimate darkness, that darkness that can be felt. Jesus hung there and endured the darkness. Okay, this is bracing, actually. If we like hear it again, if we can hear it in a fresh way, this is bracing for a number of reasons. Let me just say two. The cross means that whatever darkness you have experienced or are experiencing or will experience in your life, you are not alone in that. Part of, the, part of what is oppressive and, and, and so difficult about the darkness of the world is that it can feel so isolating and alone. You feel like you're the only one who is experiencing this 
part of the broken world, this depression, this anxiety, loneliness. It feels so isolating. But as Jesus endured the darkness on the cross, what he is saying is, whatever darkness you will ever experience, I'm there with you. I have been there, and I know what it's like. You are never alone in your grief, in your temptation, in your fear, in your guilt. He's with you. He died so that you would never, ever, ever have to be alone in your darkness. Jesus endured that death on the cross so we would never be alone, and so that when he came out the other side with resurrection life, he could provide the kind of life that the prophets were talking about. These sort of uh, you know, expectations that got a little bit out of control, turns out they weren't out of control after all. That God, This was God's intention the whole time. He intends to establish a light that never fades and a sun that never sets. Listen to the closing words of the Bible. Revelation 22, the back page of your Bible. Night will be no more. Those who are in heaven with Christ will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. See, in resurrection, in the resurrection, Jesus turns on not just light, but he turns on eternal light. He turns on a light that won't fade and will never go out. A hope, an eternal clarity, an eternal peace. So here's the thing. From literally the first words of God on the front page of your Bible to the very final words of God in the last page of your Bible, the story about what God is up to in the world is this. God turns on the lights, okay? Darkness seeps in, but God pushes back the darkness with his light. And so when Mark builds a picture frame around what it means to follow Jesus in this world, in this dark world, of course it makes sense that he picks two stories about God's story of light intervening in two men who are blind and miraculously bringing them sight. He's saying, You want to know what following Jesus looks like? Always and for every person who has encountered Jesus, it looks like him opening our eyes to his light. Jesus shines light into the darkness. He drives away sin and evil with his very presence. He brings warmth and light to our cold, dark hearts. He exposes our sin. He shines a spotlight on it, not to shame us, but like a surgeon does to heal us, to fix us. He brings hope where there is despair. He brings clarity where there is confusion. And he brings direction and wisdom where there was aimlessness and foolishness. Jesus turns on the lights. That's what God is up to in our world. This is the mission of Jesus. And he brings light to everyone who's encountered him, really. It's the universal experience of Christians. But that story of light, Jesus, I guess we could say, Jesus like brings that light to individuals in drastically different ways. This is what's so great about the family of God is that each of us in here who have a relationship with Jesus have a different story about how we encountered him. He is endlessly creative. He's endlessly um, personal and individual in his relationship with us. And this much is clear from our two friends in Mark 8 and Mark 10. So, In our time that we have left, I want to look at these two miracles and ask, how does that story of Jesus bringing light and life into the world happen in the lives of these two particular men? Okay, So, chapter 8. 
This is the miracle of gradual sight. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I really like this one because it's so weird, right? I mean, it's just a bizarre story. Uh, In 8.22, notice the blind man was brought to Jesus by some friends. So he was invited He was encouraged, even annoyed, into meeting Jesus. It wasn't on his radar at first, all right? And then, even when his buddies brought him to Jesus, it wasn't the blind man. It wasn't the one with all the need who lived in the darkness who kind of cried out to Jesus. It was his buddies intervening on his behalf, wasn't it? They are the ones who begged Jesus to heal him. So you can imagine the scenario. In fact, you might even have experienced something like this yourself. At some point... For some of you, and maybe even now, you weren't that interested in meeting Jesus. Right? He didn't seem that relevant, right? I mean, life is confusing, hard, busy. Like, what does Jesus have to do with anything that I'm going through on a day-to-day basis? You were skeptical of the way your friends talked about him. You didn't think he was very relevant to your life's problems. But you had these friends, okay? You had these friends who wouldn't let you off the hook, They constantly invited you to church, maybe a Bible study, maybe Young Life if you're in middle school or high school. Uh, And even after you'd passed on their invitations like 10 times, these were the annoying Jesus friends, okay? They kind of just kept asking you if you were interested in joining them. These friends wouldn't let you ignore Jesus. Have you ever had a friend like that? I've had a friend like that. They are annoying. They are annoying, but it turns out These annoying Jesus friends are some of the best friends that you and I will ever have. Uh, These annoying Jesus friends, they get their buddy in front of Jesus finally. We don't know how long it took. And then, then it gets weird. Verse 23. Jesus let him out of town and promptly spits in his face. And actually, if you're looking closely, he spits in his eyes. And he asked him, do you see anything? Now, if that's not weird enough, it gets weirder. The man replies in verse 24, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. In other words, he says, yeah, kind of, Jesus, it's working, but it's not really working. Uh, Sorry, I want to have a better report for you, but this is kind of what I see. Sorry. And so Jesus does it again. And now this time in verse 25, we read, the man opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, this is all very strange, but I think it highlights some really beautiful things about the way Jesus brings his light into some of our lives, all right? First of all, Jesus engages this man very personally. This isn't a clinical encounter for Jesus. He does, he's not just worried about the outcome here. He's worried about the relationship. So he's asking him questions. Uh, do you see anything? Where are we? You know, how are you doing so far? And uh, consider the humility of Jesus to even ask those sorts of questions. I mean, this is the guy who, at the beginning of creation, before anything exists and darkness covered the chaos, spoke light into existence. And now he's asking this random guy whether it's working, you know, whether he can see. This is very humble, and it's very relational. He's not just about the outcome. He wants to know about how the man's doing. And second, notice the man's honest response. The blind man... He knew his friends loved and trusted Jesus. He knew what kind of thing was supposed to happen when you encounter Jesus, okay? Uh, and he was supposed to be healed, wasn't he? he was, uh, that's how it would have been pitched to him. Hey, if we just get to you, Jesus, everything's going to be fine. We've got to get you there. So he kind of knew what the expectation was. But 
in, but when he wasn't healed totally, he, sort of, he had the honesty not to fake it, right? Not to say, uh, yeah, Jesus, good job. So he, he was only partway healed, and he told Jesus that much. I mean, this could have been pretty awkward, right? If you think about it, Jesus, Jesus, okay? Jesus, who we're talking about, spits in his face. The miracle, he, everyone knows the miracle is supposed to happen, and it doesn't fully work. And then Jesus looks at him and says, so, did it work? I mean, think of the things the guy could have said, right? He could have been like, good job, Jesus, you the man, worked again, you know, high fives all around. Like, he could have faked it. He could have lived into what everyone expected to happen. But instead, he was honest, wasn't he? He said, I see this much, and I don't see this much. Yes, I see, but yes, I don't. This is what I see, this is what I don't see. He brought his partway sight, he brought his halfway faith right back to Jesus and said, we're not done yet. Right? I think this is lovely. I actually think it shows a lot of bravery and a lot of honesty on the man's part. He brings his hesitations, his doubts, his skepticisms, his hesitancies about Jesus, and he brings them right back to Jesus. I think it reveals there was something about Jesus that he sensed, that Jesus wasn't just after right answers and right behavior and you know, kind of living into the expectation. He was after honesty. He was after truth. He wanted the real man to encounter the real Jesus. One way I found this helpful to talk about this process, I mean, I, I worked with college students for six or seven years before I came here, and um, one way that was helpful for me to kind of talk about this with college students is to say that sometimes it takes a while to try on Christianity before we know if it fits, right? It's sort of like borrowing a friend's jacket before you go out and buy your own. You kind of want to put it on. You want to wear it around town. You want to see how you look in it for a little while before you really commit to buying it. And then it turns out it fits great. You look great. And it was meant as a gift the whole time. You don't have to return it. You don't have to buy your own. It's yours to keep. Sometimes we need to try on Christianity for a while before we can feel at home in it. And Jesus, that's what Jesus is doing with this man. He wants to engage him. He wants a relationship with him and not just an outcome. And he gave him the space and the opportunity to reply with honest answers. I I would propose that this is exactly the sort of community and exactly the sort of church that we want grace to be as well. I mean, we want you to be able to be in process with Christianity and with Jesus here. We don't demand that you believe a certain thing or that you live a certain way or that you sort of answer uh, questions about religion and spirituality in, in a certain way that we might expect. There are no right answers, right? We're not fishing for certain things when we talk about spiritual life and faith. We want the real you to encounter the real Jesus. And if that means your real doubts and your real hesitancies and your real uncertainties, That's what we want here. We want this to be a place where there's space to process an encounter with Jesus. So if this is you, if you're kind of partway between, you're intrigued by Jesus, you see men, but they look like trees walking, okay? You're intrigued by Jesus, but you've got some questions too. This is exactly where we want you to be, okay? Come and hear about Jesus from his word. Strike up conversations with people over dinner, over coffee, the real you encountering the real Jesus, because that's where transformation happens, when we encounter the light of the world. This is one way Jesus enters our lives, slowly, over time, through fits and starts and doubts and realizations, 
and even annoying friends that keep inviting you to church when you've already turned them down ten times, right? Another way, chapter 10, through immediate life-altering transformation. Here we see the same result, but a totally different pathway. Here you'll notice the blind man, Bartimaeus, he was actively seeking Jesus on his own. Verse 47, Bartimaeus heard Jesus was walking by and began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And here, instead of his friends helping him meet Jesus, the crowd told him to shut it before they shut it for him. They said, verse 48, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And again, this might be closer to some of your experience. You know deep in your bones something is wrong. Okay, something's wrong with the world, and something is wrong with us. We don't see like we're supposed to. We don't live like we're supposed to. We have a sickness we can't shake. We could call it blindness, anxiety, guilt, shame, sin, an ickiness in the heart. Whatever it is, we're addicted, we're unhealthy, and we will jump at an opportunity to be healed, just like this man did. And when Jesus called his, this man over... The Bible says, throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Again, maybe you can relate. Maybe this is part of your story. When you hear the announcement of the gospel, that sinners are welcome, that the guilty are, and the shameful and the ugly are welcomed into a family where they are now clean and pure and forgiven and whole and lovely, and it's not our responsibility to wash up before we come over for dinner, but we are actually clean because of the invitation that's been extended to us. When your heart hears that news, you don't need to be convinced. You don't need to try it on. You don't need to talk it through for a long time. Uh, You don't need to address doubts and fears. You know that this was written for you. Maybe that was your experience. In your bones, you know Jesus said these things for you. And you spring up and you run and receive that gift. When Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? You already know. Um, the, the, um, oh, I'm sorry. When Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? You already know. You say, rabbi, teacher, friend, let me recover my sight. In other words, heal me, have mercy on me, and make me whole. And in verse 52, you go your way, your faith has made you well, and immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus along the way. Two stories, two men encountering the light of the world. The end result's the same, but the path to get there is so different. This is part of the beauty of Christianity. Everyone's story is unique. Everyone's encounter with Jesus is unique. And and to kind of wrap up here, let me just say, I do think that that Mark 8 transformation is the normal expectation for our modern secular world. I do think belief takes time. I do think transformation takes time. We have to try it on for a while, wrestle with it. And so let's give each other, uh, give ourselves the availability to do that, and let's give each other the availability to do that. Um, It might take a while for us to understand and really realize who it is we're encountering. But, but, don't count out Mark 10 either. Okay, Even in a secular world, even in a spiritually distracted valley like ours, God intervenes, Okay, and he miraculously and instantly can bring health where there was unhealth and salvation where there was indifference. He can intervene in a life immediately and bring total health. I've seen both. Drastically different stories, 
Everyone's unique. God is infinitely creative. But the one thing that holds all of these stories together and the one thing that this story is about and that this church is about is the grace of Jesus that intervenes in lives that really are in need. We live in a dark world, and we contribute to that darkness. But the grace and the light of Jesus pushes back the darkness and brings light into a world that desperately needs it. So this is Mark's picture frame for discipleship, to follow him, receive his light, and extend his light to those around you. All right, let's, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this, uh, these two great passages, um, miraculous interventions that look so different. And we pray that you would be at work in our lives in the same way. We pray that you would bring light where there's darkness. We pray that you'd bring clarity where there's confusion, hope where there's despair, and salvation where there is um, a broken relationship with you. We pray that you would unite us to one another and to you and that light would be something that characterizes this church for years to come. We ask this in your name. Amen.